Good morning, guys. Today, this morning, we're in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to tell you real quick where we're at, what we've been doing. Um, the last few chapters of the Gospel of Mark is that Mark has been taking us on his journey. And his whole journey began in Mark chapter 1, where he tells us straight up that this is really the story of Jesus. And he tells us straight out who Jesus is. So he identifies who Jesus is at the very beginning. So those of us that are reading the story kind of read it with this presupposition of who Jesus is. Now, if you were in the life of Jesus, watching him, you didn't have the luxury of reading and knowing who Jesus was. So all that you had were basically observations, meaning you watched Jesus walk on water and make loaves of bread and heal people's arms and eyesight and cast out demons. And you're always asking this ongoing question, who is this? Who does this? Mark tells us at the very beginning, tells us that this is the story of Jesus, the Christ, the word Christ can also be translated as Messiah. In the English, we would look at it as king. This is the story of Christ, the king, the son of God. And so he tells us the whole story, weaving it for us all the way throughout until the point where we're at. Now, what we've been doing, we've been watching Jesus not only heal people and do amazing, miraculous things that we've already kind of alluded to, but what we're going to begin to see now is this Christ, Jesus, uh, has an appointment with death. He will die. And what Mark wants us to see as he kind of takes us through this journey of the death of the Messiah, uh, he wants us to keep asking the question, why? Like last week, we saw Jesus mocked. Uh, We saw Jesus uh, shamed. We saw Jesus crucified. And again, the question has to be asked, why? If he is indeed all-powerful, almighty, king of kings, lord of lords, creator of all things, if he by snapping his fingers can literally... Um, cause himself to leave this planet and go to some other far-off distant galaxy, but he chose not to, why? Because you and I know that if that was you or I in a similar situation, I mean, some of us, uh, the only thing that's keeping you from moving or removing yourself from the trauma or drama or challenges in your life right now is powerlessness, right? You agree? Any amens on that? Like, you have no power to remove yourself from the disease that you have. All right, that might be your spouse. You're like, they're a disease. Like, uh, you have no power to just simply get yourself out of there or the job that you're in because it's challenging or the little physical diseases that you have in your body. You're powerless to get yourself out of the circumstances. That was not the case with Jesus. He had all power to somehow remove himself, but he doesn't. So again, Mark wants us to keep asking the question, why? Now, it's kind of a funny thing, because what we're going to see today is we're going to see Jesus on the cross uh, dying, as we sort of saw last week, kind of left it there last week, and we're going to move on into more Jesus dying today, the actual death on the cross. We're going to see him being abandoned by his father. And what's kind of interesting to me as, as I was reading through this and studying this is that in a lot of ways, the way that we typically write stories today, um, if you're kind of like an indie film type of a person, then your hero dies, all right? It's like end of the story, like they're dead. Everybody goes home and they're just bummed and they just want to do something to get rid of their pain, do drugs or something like that to just ease the pain because the heroes, all heroes in your life just die, just like the bad movie that you watched, the indie movie that you just watched. Most movies, however, don't necessarily follow that narrative. They follow the narrative of the heroic 
you know, moment of great darkness and despair and trial with the hero's last momentary breath, all of a sudden they're able to muster up just enough power to smite their enemies, right? So if you're kind of writing that type of modern-day heroic uh, storyline, then Jesus on the cross, just before he's about to die, he'll like call down million lightning bolts out of heaven and consume all of the wicked evildoers, all right? But that's not the storyline either. In a lot of ways, it's sort of anticlimactic. Because what we see with Jesus in the drama that Mark tells us, that this king totally absorbs all the mockery. This king absorbs the shame. This king absorbs his crucifixion. This king absorbs, as we'll see today, the darkness. And then ultimately succumbs to death. We know, obviously, setting the stage for what's about to happen next week. But in a lot of ways, the narrative, the drama, the storyline of this king is totally different, totally counter than any other narrative or drama that you or I are ever familiar with. So I'm going to begin to jump in. I'm going to read you just a handful of passages that we're actually going to ultimately cover, and then we'll get to work taking a look at the larger, broader synopsis of what we'll be taking a look at, basically from verse 33 down to the end of the chapter, which is around verse 47. So I'm going to read verse 33 going on down to verse 39. You guys can follow along, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll make some observations and begin to jump in, begin to unpack it. Starts this in verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, and there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour we saw last week, Jesus was ultimately uh, crucified, hung on the cross at what's called the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, according to that particular concept, it would have been nine o'clock in the morning. Sixth hour, therefore, would have been noon. And then the third hour, uh, uh, the ninth hour, sorry, would have actually been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the first, Jesus hung on the cross. Then at noon, there's this inexplicable darkness that we'll talk about. And then finally at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus will die. Which, by the way, is why we actually, we're going to be having a service on Good Friday at noon. Because some have asked, you know, why do we do it at noon? It's kind of inconvenient. Because it's a time for us to remember the fact that Jesus on the cross at noon was there in the throes of suffering. In verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some of the bystanders hearing it, they said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, and then saying, Wait, let us see whether or not Elijah will come and take him down. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion had stood facing, saw in this way, he breathed his last. He then said, truly, this man is the Son of God. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes to what this passage has to say, that God, as we read it, we are aware of the fact that it's easy for us, God, to read things, to even say things, or to even have had things said to us that at some point they just, they just become words. They lose any emotion. They lose any type of real affection. And God, I pray this morning that as we read this account, as we study this account of the King of Kings on the cross, the maker being unmade for us, God, that it would take a whole new angle, a whole new perspective, that it would shed forth a whole new dimension of light and life in our hearts 
So God, I pray that you would just help us this morning and let it change us, let it transform us, let it stir up, provoke, uh, create new love in our heart for you. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning what I want to do is I want to basically look at three things. Um, what we just read, we'll take a look at Jesus being overcome by darkness. So that'll be the first thing we'll take a look at, that Christ Jesus, this king, will be overcome by darkness. The second thing we'll take a look at in verses 37-38 is we're going to see that he actually surrenders to death. Ironically, most oftentimes when people are crucified, sometimes they can remain on a cross for up to days. So if you can imagine someone on a cross for days suffering and dying, uh, but not dying. Literally just sort of in this strange you know, uh, mixture between life and death. Jesus, however, dies within just a few short hours. Uh, what we're told, basically, is that he surrenders himself to death. And then finally, what we'll take a look at in verses 40 to 47 is that we're going to see him ultimately buried in the grave. So first things first, let's jump in and begin to take a look at this fact that Jesus, this strange scenario in which he's actually overcome by darkness. Now, what we're going to begin to identify is that there is a strange, inexplicable darkness that uh, comes over the entire face of the area that we're told right there. Um, we don't know how far it extends, whether it's over the entire face of the earth. We don't really know, but we're just told that in this scenario, uh, this inexplicable, unexplainable type of darkness comes upon Jesus at the noon hour and lasts for the next three hours. So for three hours, there's this tangible darkness. Um, some scholars who kind of doubt and deny the reality of the Bible oftentimes question, well, maybe this was uh, you know, some form of a, an eclipse uh, the problem with that is, is that this would have been during the time of Passover, which meant that it would have been a full moon, and full moons and um, eclipses are actually incompatible with each other. They don't happen simultaneously. Um, and even if it was an eclipse, eclipses only last for like minutes. They don't last for three hours. So this darkness is some form of an inexplicable type of darkness. And most scholars would agree that the darkness basically describes a darkness beneath the darkness, a darkness greater than a darkness. In other words, something is happening to the Son of God, happening to Jesus, that can only be described by all of the authors, but also by all of those that were observers, as darkness. In a lot of ways, what's happening is describing what's taking place within Jesus himself. And we saw it last week that Jesus was mocked, he was shamed, and up until this point in Jesus' life, he's been basically, had his, his back turned upon by his own disciples, his closest followers, his greatest friends turned their backs on him. Uh, the religious system that Jesus had taught in their synagogues. Jesus obviously had been a guest speaker um, from time to time within the very synagogues. Uh, the very religious system turned their back on Jesus, which basically is another way of saying the very nation itself turned their back on Jesus. So what you see here, Jesus up until this point, has been mocked, he's been shamed, and that's what crucifixion was, by the way. We saw this a little bit more last week. That crucifixion was not merely uh, a means by which to execute the victims. It was more than that. It was intended to shame them. And as we already kind of alluded to, that sometimes crucifixion can take days. But oftentimes, uh, usually the victim would be crucified naked. And I realize that most of our art, and most of the pictures that we've had of Jesus... Uh, usually has Jesus um, in some form of a loincloth. And oftentimes this is done merely as a way of just giving some level of decency to Jesus because of respect for him. But the reality is, because the people that put Jesus to death had no respect for him, 
they probably would have crucified him totally naked, totally nude. So here's Jesus, totally crucified, totally abandoned by all of his friends, by the very nation. He literally is a man without a nation, without a family, without a friend. I was watching a show uh, a couple days ago. It was actually, um, you guys ever watch TED? TED Talks? Any TED fans out here? Like five geeks, and that's about it. Come on, there's got to be more. You guys are too embarrassed to admit, but that's cool. That's fine. We're not going to go there. The point of the matter is I was watching this great TED Talk. It was about a gal who had actually uh, gotten away from North Korea, and she was describing how there was a couple years uh, in which she was actually living in China. Uh, she made her way into China, and for two years, she actually had to suppress or hide or cover her identity. She said it was the most trialsome, most difficult period of her life because she never knew whether or not she'd be found out. And if, if she was to be found out, uh, they would basically send her back into her homeland in which, uh, because she now would be um, kind of a betrayer, she would be executed. So she was describing that the most painful thing for her was to literally have lost her identity. She, was, she, she lost her identity. And in reality, this is what happened with Jesus. In a very tangible way, he lost his identity, lost his homeland, lost his nation, lost his friends. And now ultimately, what we're going to see right now, this darkness epitomizes the fact that Jesus will actually lose the grip, the hand, the fellowship with his father. In other words, everything up until this particular point that Jesus has endured, the suffering that Jesus has gone through, that Jesus has literally submitted himself to go through it, all of, things are, all of these are nothing more than minor bruises compared to the ultimate suffering that he's about to encounter on the cross in the darkness. All of them. And as tragic as they are, this is the true end, true ultimate means of suffering that Jesus is about to encounter. That he himself, it can only be described as darkness. That's interesting, darkness, as I was kind of studying for this and researching for this, you know there's actually a, a whole line of scientific research and study to study the effects of darkness on biology. It's actually called scotobiology. Um, the, the opposite of it is uh, what's called photobiology, obviously the study of light. Scotobiology has to do with the study or the impact of darkness upon biological creatures. And this whole field of science basically is to try to identify how darkness impacts and affects different types of species and animals and oftentimes even in some ways sociolo sociological senses people. But we know that really at the end of the day, darkness does have a debilitating effect upon us as human beings. Have you guys ever lived in a place where it's just cloudy all the time? I have some in-laws that actually live up in Seattle area, and I visited there. And that was, I don't know, we were there for like a week. It felt like a month, and we like stayed in this trailer, and I didn't have a car, and they live out in this sort of like area where it's not much to do. And every day, I, I just didn't want to wake up. I'm like... Put me out of my misery now. This is horrible. I want to die. Because it's just cloudy all the time. And it's rainy. And it's like, felt like it somehow infected my soul. And it's horrible. All right? Maybe I'm just spoiled Southern California boy. But the point of the matter is this. Is that darkness has this effect psychologically upon human beings. Um, Ernest Shackleton, uh, some of you guys remember him. He was this great adventurer. He went down to the South Pole. And he described uh, one of the greatest, most horrific times of their entire travels was during the, during the winter, where it was just, it tottered between this sort of twilight and utter darkness for a long time. People were not made to live in darkness. We were made to live in light. 
In a lot of ways, throughout the Bible, the Bible actually uses the image of, or the metaphor of light and darkness to describe in a lot of ways how God designed us, how God made us, that we were, as literally functioning human beings, biological beings, were made to function, to live, to thrive, to come alive in light. It's why, by the way, uh, when it's a nice sunny day, sometimes you wake up and you're like, I want to go hike something, because the sun just makes you feel like that, does it not? And the reality is, is that in a lot of ways, this is sort of symbolic that the Bible describes even throughout the Bible in terms of our relationship as human beings with God, our creator. It's one of the reasons why the Bible describes God as being light. God dwells in light. And the picture is, is that in God, in light, we were designed to live, to fully live, to fully come to life in God. I thought I'd kind of give you guys a little bit of a, next slide, um, a little bit of a graph to kind of identify some of the differences between light and darkness. Um, some of these aren't necessarily going to have chapter and verse uh, back, but they're images oftentimes picked up throughout the Bible. So for example, light, um, it ultimately kind of corresponds with life. And darkness corresponds with death. And it's one of the reasons why, like for example, one of the New Testament writers, a guy by the name of John, writes this book, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and oftentimes uses the analogy, the picture of light and darkness, that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so the picture is, is that God created us to flourish, to truly live. And the reality is, is that when we are in light, we really live. We have life. It's one of the reasons why the scripture oftentimes is identified as being like a, a, a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. In other words, it guides me, it leads me. I'm not walking in darkness, bouncing around, bumping into things, getting bruised up in the darkness. There's this idea that oftentimes in our minds that we think that to be close to God, to know God, to be in relation to God, actually takes away our life. And I can remember this, before I was a Christian, Kind of had this idea, and a lot of it was shaped upon false assumptions, false ideas that I had about God. But the reality is, I had sort of this pervasive idea in my mind that to give my life to Jesus, to follow God, would basically mean the end of my life. No one would like me anymore. Life would be over. I'd be kind of one of those weird religious freaks. I didn't want to be that. But the reality is, is that only in God do we truly have life. Okay, if God, for example, is light... Bible describes him as that, then that means to be in relationship with God, to love God, to pray, to submit your heart to him, to wake up in the morning just saying, God, not what I will, but what your will is be done. God, let your will be done in my life. In short, that is really the prayer of a Christian. Because non-Christians, people who don't know God, God is not on the radar screen. And if he is on the radar screen, their whole life is lived in a way of trying to push him off of the radar screen. Because the assumption is, the idea is, is that God interferes with your life. But if God is light, the way the Bible describes, then that also in turn means that he is the source of life. In the reality, for example, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, they basically made a decision that says, what we want to do is what's best in our thinking, what's best in our rationality. We don't want to do what God tells us to do. God says, Avoid the tree. It says we want to eat from the tree. We think that God's actually withholding something 
And so therefore, they basically, by their actions, were walking away from relationship with God, walking away from the words of life of God. And rather than walking into life like they thought they were going to walk into, they actually walked into darkness, into death. <laughs> Light also depicts hope. Darkness de- depicts despair. In a lot of ways, this is a lot of truth. This is really true. I mean, if you've ever, for example, had a moment of, of great Maybe it's just in your soul. You just feel dark. Things just feel overwhelmingly uh, troublesome and oppressive to you. You feel full of despair, right? You might even know this kind of from a physical sense. Like if you've ever uh, had a bad nightmare or you something kind of spooked yourself out, maybe you watched a movie you shouldn't watch, you know, just before you went to bed, now you're having bad nightmares, thinking about this type of stuff. And then you keep waking up and you feel tormented by these bad thoughts the number one thing that you feel in those moments is a sense of despair. And the one thing that you cannot wait for is the dawn, right? The moment you see the sun rising, you're like, ah. That's, that's, that's a sigh, by the way, of, of hope. It's finally here. The light has come. Uh, light is also referred to or kind of identified in the sense of stability, centeredness. In other words, a sense of poise. Um, the... Alternate is disorientation. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, that when you walk in darkness, Paul actually uses this type of a metaphor in referring to, uh, to uh, I think, on, on, in Mars Hill on Athens when Paul was talking. He says, men in former days would actually walk around in darkness. They were blinded, and they would bump into things. In other words, spiritually, they were just bumping into things, walking into things. The idea is that they were disoriented. And whenever you bump into something when you're walking and it's dark, it's very disoriented. Because you're not really sure how bad that wound is. You're not sure if you're like gushing blood or if it's just a minor bruise. You're not really sure what it is. So it kind of disorients you. But when you walk in light, there's a sense of stability and centeredness. Another thing is identity. In light, we know who each other is. That's really bad grammar right there. I know. We know who each other are. All right? I can't actually speak English, I think. Um, we know who each other are in the light. All right? Um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, obviously at some point you're going to turn around to someone next to you and you're going to say, what's your name? Well, that's totally relevant, especially if there's life, especially if you can see their face. If you're in pitch darkness, you don't even really need to ask somebody their name because it's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. They're, they're, they're nameless. They're faceless. There's no identity. It's lost. It's gone. And then the final thing, light describes a sense of integration. It brings things together. There's a sense of togetherness. Things are, are unified. It's the idea, it's at the beginning of creation, Genesis 1, one of the first things that God created was light. Let there be light covering the expanses. And light oftentimes refers to this integration, things being brought together, things being unified. But in darkness, there's disintegration, or maybe to use another phrase, the forces of anti-creation, undoing, breaking apart, taking the good purposes of creation and breaking them down, sabotaging them, destroying them, distorting them, so that rather than functioning as an integrated whole, they're not functioning as an integrated whole, and what you have is nothing but disharmony, dissonance, and brokenness. So let me put it this way. One of the reasons why God says, and John says, and the New Testament describes, walk in the light as he is in the light, is because when we walk in the light, when we obey God, when we trust God, we move from the category of death, despair, disorientation, anonymity, 
disintegration into a place of life, hope, stability, identity, and integration. Which means that before all of that happens, our lives are nothing but death, despair, disintegration, anonymity, disintegration. And this is the story of humanity in a fallen sense. Meaning we are trying desperately as fallen human beings to find something by which to identify our lives by. In other words, we are looking for something to live our lives in light of. We even use a phrase. Oh, I live my life in light of my giftings. Or I live my life in light of my vocation. Or I live my life in light of my vast wealth. In other words, it becomes the defining thing that identifies who you are. And this is the problem with humanity. We basically have um, substituted, turned away from God, the true light, and turned to false lights, and have tried to somehow bring about identity in our life through these false things. The Bible describes them as idols. And when we make a good thing, an ultimate thing, and we make something that was created to take the place in our lives as our creator, then what happens, we begin to experience Breakdown, destruct, destruction, disintegration, darkness. I'll give an example on a practical level for myself. I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for you know, almost 20 years. I love what I do. I love pastoring. I love preaching the Bible. I love studying, doing what I do. Um, I love counseling people, hanging out with people, coaching. A lot of my time is spent helping to lead leaders and train people in our church and do men's basic trainings and a lot of it is also teaching, preaching, and so on and so forth. But if I made my job as a pastor to be an ultimate thing, in other words, if me being a pastor became the thing by which I live my life in light of, in other words, if being a pastor identifies me, it's what I find my sum total of life from. It is the source of my light and life, being a pastor. Then I will be the most miserable person in the world. Because what will happen, there's going to be times that people will mock me. There will be people that will say, I hated that message. It was horrible. Or you're not a very good pastor. I don't like what you're doing. Or you offend me. Or your haircut looks bad and I don't like going there anymore. And pastors oftentimes can be some of the most insecure people you've ever met. Have you ever been to a church where sometimes the pastor might seem to be absolutely just focused on numbers and size? Oftentimes, it can be a subtle betrayal of the fact that he's actually, he's, he's made this identi his, his identity. And when there's not the people there, when people are leaving, it's not just people leaving a church. Look, I'll just be really honest with you. I, I, I love pastoring people, but the reality, there are, there are people time, uh, times when people come and say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go to church anymore, I'm going to go someplace else. And that, that can be painful because you pour yourself and pour your life into other people, and it's just painful just friendship-wise. I mean, you just grow, grow attached to people. But if my whole life and identity was found in this, when somebody leaves or when someone attacks or someone takes off or someone does something that is destructive to me, then I'm in total despair. I'm coming undone. I'm unraveling. I'm breaking down. I'm in darkness because the reality is is those things that we put our hearts upon and give our lives to, and we look to as being the things that give us light and life. You and I are only as fragile as those things are. 
You and I are only as fragile as those things are. So does that mean you like walk away, stop being a pastor, stop following your vocation? No, it means that you reorient them in a proper way. But the problem is, is that oftentimes our hearts don't know truly what we want. This is why oftentimes, sometimes even in relationships, people may fix their eyes and think, my life, my wholeness, my feeling good about myself is always bound by whether or not I have a boyfriend, whether or not I have a girlfriend, whether or not I have a house, or whether or not I have a lot of money in the bank account. And when those things are there, how do you feel? You feel really good. You feel happy. You feel joyful. You feel complete. You feel like you have life, hope, stability, identity, integration. What happens when those things aren't there? Your boyfriend dumps you. Girlfriend says adios. The money somehow miraculously forms wings and flies away. The job gets promotion given it's given to someone else. What happens? What happens is you immediately enter into death, despair, disorientation, anonymity, disintegration. You guys, this is all of us. This is every single last one of us in this room. The Bible basically says this. All of us naturally choose a path that is not walking towards God. We choose a path that is walking away from God, hoping, thinking that that path will actually lead to a path of light and life and orientation and being given a name and some sense of stability and hope. But the reality is, is we put our hope and trust in these, all the, these other things that cannot sustain our lives. And when they break, we break along with them. That's what happens. Look, at the end of the day, to someone who perhaps, say for example, an unregenerate person, a non-Christian, if God gave us what we ultimately truly wanted, every human being, in a natural sense, does not want God. We don't. Jesus even said so. He says, you've turned away because your deeds are evil, because you love darkness more than light. Jesus is the one who said that. In other words, we love doing things that actually lead and contribute to and recycle this ongoing pervasive reality of darkness. And Jesus basically says, if we continue to go down that path and there's nothing that intercepts us, then there comes a point that when those things that we hope in, when they disintegrate, then we disintegrate along with us. Or we disintegrate along with it. And the reality is that if God gave us what the deepest desires of our heart wanted, then we would be led into a path of destruction. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And what we see with him is that on the cross, we see Jesus entering in this darkness. What we see Jesus losing is the one thing he loved more than anything. The Father. Jesus is coming undone. The Bible tells us that he is the maker of all things. And what we're watching in the darkness is the maker being unmade. What we're watching is the creator disintegrating. What we're watching is Jesus literally fall apart, crumble in the middle of all of this. In other words, what Jesus is doing and experiencing is what you and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Not in an ultimate sense. Jesus experiences it in the ultimate sense, though. So here's the reality. That God does not and chooses not to let us have what we ultimately want. This is what's amazing about this. I was listening to a, uh, a message the other day. Um, it's a pastor. I think his name was Art Azuda. Great pastor. And he was kind of giving this great analogy about a kite. And I loved it because what he was saying is that in a lot of ways, our lives, if, if somehow you can interview a kite while it's flying, it's enjoying, you know, 100 feet up in the air, if you can somehow transform that kite, give it a mouth, let it talk, uh, what the kite actually might say, the kite might say, look, my fullest life comes alive when I'm in the air, but the reality is there's one thing that's holding me back. It's the string. If I can cut the string, then I'd really have life. Then I'd really fly. But you and I know, obviously, because you guys are smart, and most of us don't even know too much about physics, but we just know enough about kite flying that if you cut the string, Mr. Kite's not going to live. He'll die. Because that string is what keeps him living. And the reality is this is the truth about God. God created us in his image. God created us like him. God created us to be with him. And in his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is light. In his presence is life. To sever that, which is what sin is. Sin is our attempt to sever our ties with God. Sin is our attempt to emancipate ourselves from the image of God that's been placed upon us. Sin is our attempt to remove ourselves from this God who loves us, who created us, which we bear his image. We don't move into life. We move into destruction. It's like a 15-year-old kid that looks at mom and dad and says, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. I'm running away. I'm tired of this house. I'm tired of these rules. I'm tired of you and dad. I'm tired of everything about this place. I'm gone. And I will go out and I will find true life. And you can interview that kid like 20 years later. And unless that kid met Jesus and changed, you ask that kid, have you really found what you're looking for? What you will find in almost every single case is that there's deep pain in their heart because they really just wanted to be loved. But what happened is they emancipated themselves from the house. And this is what we do. And this is ultimately what's going to happen to Jesus, that Jesus himself will be cut off from the one whom he loves most, and he will suffer. Every other form of suffering up until this point has been nothing more than like a flea bite in comparison to the suffering that Jesus is experiencing in the darkness on the cross in this moment. The second thing we see is that we see that Jesus surrenders to death. Verse 37, 38. I'll go through these real quickly. It says this. He says, then Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood by facing saw this that he breathed his last he said truly this is son of man and what we see here is that Jesus uh, literally doesn't die like most victims would die Jesus actually shouted something and then he breathed his last in other words he succumbed he let he just gave up the ghost, another translation says. I don't even know what that means. Other than Jesus just says, all right, time's done. Ghost, spirit, leave. Soul, leave. Whatever it is, go. It's gone. Release. And Jesus died. He submitted himself, surrendered himself to death. Third thing is we see that he's ultimately going to be buried in the grave. And I just want to read through this very quickly, and I'll make some comments as I go through. In a lot of ways, this sort of sets the stage for the next uh, 
Next message we'll be taking a look at next week, obviously, when things change pretty considerably. Verse 40, some of you will get that on the way home. Verse 40 says this, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. Um, and there were also many women who came up from him to Jerusalem. Now this is shocking. I'll just tell you why in just a second. Um, in, in a lot of ways, if you were to be building sort of a brand new religion, all right, and you're trying to gather a following, get people to kind of validate it and find it as being a plausible religion to follow, you know, it's a, comes a new money marketing scheme and technique and whatnot. What you want to do is you want to, you want to make it as sellable as possible. You want people to believe it. You want people to buy it. Now, first century, um, there was a very anti-woman vibe in the world. And basically, it went like this. That if you had a child, and that child was a daughter, uh, you would oftentimes leave that child out to die. There, there are actually... Uh, areas where they have sort of dug up areas throughout the ancient city of Jerusalem where there are bones of babies in the sewage system, blockages in the sewage system. Why? Because they would kill baby daughters. Women had no place at all in society, in culture in the first century. Now, if you're going to build a believable story, a religion, and get people to follow it, you would not use uh, in any way to validate that the storyline of women. Why is Mark describing, telling us the reality of these women that have been following Jesus? In a lot of ways, it almost would sort of do a disservice to promoting this brand new thing that's happening. And the reason is, for two reasons. One, it happened. It actually happened. Secondly, God really, 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 really likes women. And he really, really, really likes to take people that are stuck on the margins of society and the most vulnerable and give them value. So women, a lot of you, you sit here today and you enjoy a lot of freedoms that a lot of women throughout the world do not have. And it began with the heart of God who actually sees women as equal with men and he values them and he raises them and he gives them dignity and value and respect. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that women are actually spoken of here is that God actually gives value to women. Verse 42, it says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day of, before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was uh, also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already be, have died. And it says, And then summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not uh, he had already been dead. And when he had learned it, the centurion, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought or bought a linen shroud and taking with him, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb and put, uh, that had been cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now what's amazing to me is, is this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about him, but to just kind of point out, uh, what we do know about him is that we're told that he was part of the council, which probably is an allusion to the fact that he was part of the council of the Sanhedrin, which means this corpus, this body of people that actually um, brought these accusations against Jesus and ultimately turned him over to uh, Pilate. Um, that would have meant that Joseph of Arimathea, of Arimathea would have been part of that council himself. Now, we're told that he actually was a believer in the kingdom of God, meaning he probably trusted Jesus to be the king. 
He was probably confused, just like all the other disciples were. But in a lot of ways, he was sort of an undercover ninja Christian, right? He was one of those guys that you wouldn't really know whether or not he followed Jesus. Like, if you asked him, do you love Jesus? Jesus who? Um, yes, that's what I thought. So the point of the matter is that Joseph was one of these guys that, for whatever reason, there's a lot at stake for him to confess the fact that he was a follower of Jesus. So for whatever reason, Joseph of Arimathea sort of followed Jesus from a distance. However, when this whole scenario took place, Joseph had enough respect for Jesus, enough love for the kingdom of God that he figures out a way to wheel and deal, to talk, to bargain, to barter with Pilate in order to get the body of Jesus. Now typically when someone would die back in those days, they would oftentimes take the bodies and just toss them in the big uh, heap, uh, big mound, oftentimes maybe even off the side of a cliff, and just let animals eat them so that they're kind of on the outside, you know, away from the actual dwelling places of the cities, because there's no respect for dead, especially dead, martyred uh, people that were victims of, you know, Roman penalty. Um, so there probably would not have been any respect for Jesus, but Joseph had a lot of respect and dignity and value for Jesus, so he figures out a way to somehow get the body of Jesus, and somewhere between you know, 3 o'clock and whenever he did the burial, he was working hard. He was walking back and forth. He didn't have cell phones. So, Pilate, I need to figure out, can I get the body of Jesus? He actually had to walk from the cross to the place where Pilate was at, dialogue with him, figure things out, maybe wait in a line of other people that are trying to get Pilate to talk to him. Pilate's very busy, and it's an extremely busy season for him. It's Passover time. He's able to make these deals within a short amount of few hours. He's able to secure the body of Jesus. He ends up buying a cloth. I mean, imagine, he's walking back, got to get back to Jesus quick. He buys, you know, a shroud, a cloth to cover the body of Jesus. And all of this gets the body of Jesus, then puts Jesus into a tomb, secures it, puts a stone in front of it, and this ultimately sets the stage for what's about to happen next week. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus died and was buried. I want you to feel the, the certainty of that. Because the reality is, death and burial is something that all of us will either deal with at some point in our life, or you've already dealt with it to some degree. I mean, the older I get, I mean, I think I've done here in 19 years of pastoring, three funerals. Done three funerals for our church. That's like one every five years. It's not a lot. But as our church grows, as I grow, friends that I've known begin to die. The reality is, is death is something that is final. People don't rise from the dead. It's just something that does not happen. And I think Mark wants us to feel the reality of this as he sets the stage that what's about to happen just simply doesn't happen. What's about to take place doesn't take place. That God is about to start something brand new. A new day is dawning. Something in which that which is impossible becomes the possible. That which is totally unexpected becomes the new expected. That God is about to do something miraculous. He will break in in a way like he's never broken in before. But in order for that to happen, there must first be this darkness that swallowed the king. There must be the sense of death in which he gave himself up to. And there must be a grave in which he was taken into. And this is what we see with Jesus and the final thing I want to finish with him done is really, again, Mark intends, I'm convinced, for us to keep asking the question, 
Who is this? What is so significant about this guy? This person, this king, this Messiah, this preacher, this rabbi, this teacher, this healer. What's so significant about him? And I think what Mark wants us to see is, and in fact, I'll even tell you in verse 39, um, some scholars have looked at this and thought that this is the most centralizing verse in the entire gospel. In fact, this is the one verse that basically tells us the entirety of the book, what the whole book is all about. It's been echoed, it's been hinted at, it's been suggested, but now it becomes ultimately centered. The, the spotlight is shown upon who this man ultimately is. And take a look at what happens. In verse 39, uh, once Jesus is there on the cross, he gives up the ghost, he dies. It says in verse 9, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw him in this way breathe his last, he said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. Something about the way that Jesus died. Now, in the other gospel accounts tell us, Luke, Mark just kind of leaves us hanging, but something about what Jesus said and how he died blew this guy's mind. Now you got to understand something about a centurion. Now last week we looked a little bit at soldiers. Soldiers were straight up street thugs. That's all they were. They were like unemployable street thugs. Guys that couldn't get jobs anywhere else. They're like, oh you like, you know, killing cats and pulling off wings of bugs? Great. How about we got a job for you? You can work for the Roman government as a thug, as a Roman soldier. Great. That's what I want. I want to kill people. So a Roman centurion starts out as a street thug who makes his way up through the ranks and becomes a professional street thug, all right? To the point where not only has he, by the time he's going to be a centurion, his stripes mark the reality that he has seen maybe thousands of people killed. Maybe he's killed hundreds himself. His people that he represents, which would be an army of 100 people, have seen thousands probably killed under his immediate direct orders. This guy's a murderer. This guy's in the mafia, if you want to think of it that way. But what Mark wants us to see is that this mafioso, this murderer, this guy that has just been a street thug his entire life and has witnessed the brutal murder and has probably been over the brutal murder of many people, this guy had identified who this person really is. And grace was given to him to see this. What's absolutely amazing is the, the phrase son of God is kind of a unique phrase. Um, in Jewish context, it would mean uh, the name given to somebody of greatest, highest honor and prestige. In a Roman sense, uh, it carried a similar connotation, but more so it had a personal uh, connection. Um, on Roman coinage, they would actually have an imprint that would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the most high God. Which meant Caesar would have been given the title son of God. And so for this Roman soldier whose entire life had paid homage to Caesar as his God, son of God, for the first time in his life, something about Jesus captivates him to the point where it reduces him, where he calls out by saying, this, this is the son of God, which simultaneously is a repudiation of Caesar being the son of God. What was it that this Roman soldier saw? Well, I think probably two things real quick, and I'm done. First, he probably saw that no one had ever suffered like this person ever. Now, he's watched many people die. But maybe there was something about the way that Jesus suffered that was unique. And maybe even if I could use the word 
unique slash beautiful. When other people die, crucifixion style, it was not uncommon for them to defecate on other people, to urinate on other people, to spit on other people, because while they're dying as a criminal, they're being mocked, they're being shamed, they're being shunned. It's the only way of retaliation. Jesus doesn't. Jesus prays while he's dying. But the second thing that probably perhaps could have blown this guy's mind is that no one had ever been faithful to God like this ever before. Because while he's dying, while he's in the midst of this darkness, while he's suffering, Jesus is still crying. Here's his prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a prayer of someone like you and I oftentimes can pray. Why would you do this, God, to me? Who do you think you are cursing God? Saying negative things about who God is. Not Jesus. Jesus is actually crying, my God, my God. Not someone else's God, my God. You are my God. But you're abandoning me. I don't understand this. I don't understand why the brevity, the depth, the darkness. Why are you forsaking me? But he still clung to his God, even though the Father turned his back on him. So there's something profound about Jesus' death that literally led this guy to shout that this is the Son of God. And the reality is, I think if you and I listen to that cry from Jesus ourselves and see and watch and observe and feel and understand what he's saying, it has the power to change us. In other words, the darkness that Jesus took upon himself has the power, if you understand why, to push back, to dispel the darkness that you and I all feel. I want to finish with a quote, because I think C.S. Lewis says this best. I've quoted this line before, so some of you are probably going to be familiar with it, and I've oftentimes used it as a quote to basically identify how we oftentimes are trusting or lack of trusting whatnot in other people. But I want to kind of put a little twist on this. C.S. Lewis says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. You guys know this, right? You ever like giving your heart to somebody, you know, puppy love, you're like, I'm going to give my heart to that person, and they break your heart. Now you're like, I'm not going to love anybody again. And like three months later, you're like falling in love again. The whole stupid cycle goes on. You know what I'm talking about. And your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, right? Love a dog and it dies. That happened to us two weeks ago. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable and impenetrable. To love is to be vulnerable. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, why was Jesus mocked? Why did he put up with it? Why did he absorb it? Why was Jesus shunned? Why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus shamed? Why did Jesus subject himself to the darkness of the Father turning his back on him? Why? Cecil says, love. He loves you. You are in darkness. We're in darkness. Our souls are coming undone. If you're honest with yourself, apart from God, Aside from God, to push ourselves away from God doesn't lead to life. It leads to unraveling. It leads to being come undone. 
in what Jesus says is I love them so much. I don't want to see them come undone. I will become undone for them to rescue them so that those who are becoming undone can be put back together again. So those who are lost, trying to figure out a name for themselves, to find an identity, searching for it, paying for it, doing anything they can to get it, Jesus says, I will lose my identity in order to give them one. I will lose my life in order to go into their death to give them life. I will allow myself to be stained so that them in their defilement and stain can be given beauty for their ashes. Because we have a king that's not like Caesar. Our king, this king, loves us to the degree that you know that you are loved and pursued, relentlessly pursued by this God that rewires your affections. It changes your heart. It turns you from just simply being an admirer of God to falling on your face and being a worshiper of him. It changes you. It changes what you love. It changes how you live. It changes how you spend your money. It changes how you view who your friends are. It changes how you view what clothes you should wear. What defines you. It changes everything about you. If you want to be free from all of these things, you've got to see that your freedom came by the only free God losing that freedom so that you, who are trying desperately to find freedom, but who are nothing but bound, can actually be given freedom to be liberated. He's a God that you can trust. We're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. We have communion in the back. If you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, if you're part of his family, I invite you to partake of communion together. We have rugs in the front to just get down on your knees before Jesus, to pray, to get on your hands and knees, to just kind of sit before him if you'd like. We're going to have some people available up over by the cross to pray for you. Guys, don't miss the opportunity. Just pour out your heart to love this king who's a good king. Because look, at the end of the day, guys, we will trust something to be the means that gives us an identity. I don't care who you are. Your issue in your life is not an issue of faith. We all have faith. We all believe something will define us. We all believe if we have something, then we will have life and security and stability. But the reality is, is that whatever you put your hope and trust in that's anything other than God, then you will become as fragile as that thing that you're trusting in. And when it breaks, you'll break with it. But if you see that Jesus who put his faith and confidence and trust and love in the Father all the way to the very end, and when he lost them, he broke. He did that so that you who are broken could be made whole. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That changes you. I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Why don't we all stand? If you've got kids, um, might be a good idea for you to grab them. You can bring them in here. They can worship with you if you like. That'd be great. Um, don't lean back for too long. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a few songs. We'll dismiss. God, right now, thank you for great grace, great love, and kindness that has been demonstrated to us through Jesus on the cross. God, I pray that you would move our hearts from just mere spectator status to being worshipers, lovers of you. So move in our hearts right now, God. Move in this place right now. Give us a fresh glimpse. Stir in our hearts new affections for you.